There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Colin Andrews and today, Steve Molina. Hi, Steve. Hey, Colin. Thanks for having me. Well, welcome to the show. For those of you who do not know who Steve is, Steve's going to introduce himself in a minute. Greg is away today, and so Steve has graciously filled his role, and I'm sure we'll get some entertaining comments. So, Steve, tell us a little bit about your background with the CM Group. Thanks, Colin, for having me again. I joined the CM Group probably 21 years ago. It seems like such a lifetime ago. But I started out as pretty much a marketing assistant, and my roles evolved over time where after completing my securities courses, I transitioned to more of an investment associate role and then eventually into an advisor and now a partner. And it's been great. Steve and I have been working together since I think 2007. Yeah. Our desks used to be very close to each other. And now we're separated by some thin walls. Well, actually, now we're separated by houses because of a global pandemic. So, Steve, last week we had Tim Noonan on the show. And Tim talked with us about the importance of trust in a working relationship and sort of the evolution of advice. So we're, we're going to kind of carry on with some of this theme. I know you've been listening to the other podcast episodes. I have. So for today, we're going to talk about entertainment advice and get into that. To start that off, Steve, I just kind of wanted to touch on this concept of news because in our previous episodes, we talked about how in order for something to be news or newsworthy, it has to be new. Correct. And how if something has already been printed or, I don't know, been put out there in the world, it's not really new. And so that information, according to the efficient market hypothesis, which we quite often reference, just tells us that it's been priced in already, that it's not new. It's already there. So I wanted to look a little more clearly at, well, what does the dictionary define news as? And interestingly enough, there were three comments about news is that it's information about a recently changed situation or a recent event. It could be information that is published in newspapers and broadcast on radio and television, again, about recent events. And it could be something about recent events in the country or the world. So that's the dictionary's definition of news. But the idea of news and what it is has changed a lot over the last few years. I'd agree with that for sure, especially with everything that we've seen politically around North America. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't want to get into that just yet. <laughs> We're doing our best to stay out of that pot, but we will talk about it in a little bit. But let's talk about headlines. So this idea of entertainment advice comes from the idea of having people's, I guess, decision-making criteria impacted by the headlines that they're surrounded by. And we're surrounded by a lot of headlines these days. I looked at one of the New Yorker magazine, and this isn't recent. It talks about how headlines change the way we think. What it references is that a headline determines basically how people, not only how many people will read an article, but how they read it. And there's a psychologist out of the University of Western Australia 
I believe his name is Ulrich Ecker. And he studied just this impact of headlines and the difference in factual news articles and opinion-based articles. And it turns out, based on the evidence that he found in doing a study with, I don't know how many people, let's call it 100 or so, it is a published piece. So it's, I know that there's factual evidence behind it. But it turns out that the headline had more than simply reframed the article. In the case of factual articles, a misleading headline actually hurt a reader's ability to recall the article's details. And in the case of opinion-based articles, I should say that in this study he conducted, he had two factual articles and two opinion articles, and he did not tell the people which ones were which. But in the case of opinion articles, a misleading headline and the one he used in his study was suggesting that genetically modified foods are dangerous, actually impaired a reader's ability to make accurate inferences into what they were reading. So that brings us into like fake news or false news, whatever you want to call it. And I know you're going to get into that a little bit, but if we're surrounded by news and we're surrounded by social media and all these different forms of news outlets, let's get into this idea of fake news and where it came from. That's a great point because if we break down fake news and or versus false information, I think a lot of experts today are recommending that people avoid using the term fake news because it's now closely associated with politics. Oh, I thought we weren't getting into politics, Steve. I know, but listen. We need to do it. Yeah, we need to do it. And this association, unfortunately, kind of narrows that focus on the issue. False information, I think, is preferable, especially in today's world. Well, the term Not receiving false information, but using the term false information? Yeah, yeah. using the term false information. Yeah, (laughs) correct. I think it just, it's more diverse in terms of range and it focuses on things such as health, environmental issues, economics. It reaches all sorts of platforms and genres. While fake news, well, that's kind of more focused on what we said we wouldn't talk about. I think about false information the way I think about using the internet to self-diagnose a medical issue. And how every time I've ever done this, and I had to stop doing this as a self-admitted hypochondriac at times, it would always lead to two paths. No matter what the issues were, I was either having a heart attack or I had cancer. (laughs) (laughs) Those are like the WebMD things that you use. Google is useful for a lot of things, but definitely not to self-diagnose yourself or something. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about false information. There's a lot of things online that you read in social media feeds that appear to be true, but let's be honest, how often are they true? I don't know. So I can tell you. (laughs) What's interesting is they can be very misleading and you have to search quite deep into it to find out the truth. So I think that's essentially created deliberately to misinform readers. I think we can agree on that. Well, there's examples of that all over the place. I mean, like you said about social media feeds, how many times have people called in and said, well, I was reading the news or watching the news and and you sort of dig a little deeper and say, well, which news source were you watching? And they say things like Facebook. I'm not sure when Facebook became a news source, but perhaps a place to find false information. So Steve, let's talk about the different types of false information that exist out there in regards to specifically to social media sites, because they do play a big part in delivering this idea of news. There's six particular items, six ways of delivering false information. The first is called clickbait. Basically using a 
headline to grab the attention, but it's driving you to another website. For me, I feel like this is like when my kids see something on the line and they click it and all of a sudden I have a virus. <laughs> I guess back in the day it would be like if you had an advertisement for a store and they had a TV on sale for $99, but you went into the store and they were sold out of the $99 TV and all they had was the $1,000 TVs. What a great way to get you to upsell or get you to buy something that's much more expensive. Propaganda would be number two. So stories that are created to deliberately mislead audiences. So I guess where you're seeing this one, maybe this is just opinion-based. Previous elections, they talk about having misleading information that is sent out there on the web to try to influence voters. The third being satire or parody. So basically, social media websites are publishing fake news stories for entertainment purposes only. Some examples of that, well, I don't really have any good examples of that, but have you run across those types of? I've seen a ton of those. And like I said, once again, you have to dig deep into finding the true source of it. But from an entertainment perspective, it's a great laugh. What I always find interesting is that people take that for truth. It's a stretch when you read some sort of a, what you know is a fake news or false news potential and all of a sudden create it as equal and whole. And it kind of flows with that saying, if it's too good to be true. How does it finish that saying? Probably is. Number four, sloppy journalism. Well, I guess this actually exists. I mean, back in the last U.S. election, there was a retailer. I won't use their name because then we'll have to find a disclaimer. But it was a fashion retailer, and they published an election day guide, which actually had incorrect information in it, telling people that they needed a voter registration card, which isn't required in the U.S. So I'm not sure why that got in there or who wrote it or who passed it, but basically not knowing the extent of the information that's required. Well, which is interesting as well, because you like to think that journalists have a high code of conduct. And prior to sending anything out, it's vetted by some editor before it's cleared. Exactly. So number five, misleading headings, which we kind of talked about, but sensationalized headlines used to spread this information quickly on social media sites. It just catches your attention and it's sensationalized. And then the last one being biased or slanted news. So basically just that in the past episode, Steve, Greg and I have talked about this idea of behavioral biases, that we all have them, they're part of us. And I know you and I have talked about this over the years, but these headlines prey on our beliefs or biases. And so we want to believe that they're real. It's so easy to, right, Colin? I don't know, is it? Absolutely. As human beings, we have these biases for a reason. And our past experiences have helped shape those. So why wouldn't you want to prey on that? And that's kind of what the media loves to do. Well, it's kind of like when you get those headlines about the number one stock to buy. And of course you want to believe it and you want to own it. And the reality is that it's probably not if it's been printed and information's probably already been priced in and et cetera. Let's talk about sort of the history of headlines and then get into some current headlines. So back in, I think it was 1999, or it could have been even 2000. There's an author named Harry Dent, and he wrote a book that he called The Roaring 2000s. And so the main claim of this book was that the Dow Jones Industrial Average would climb from its 10,000 points to 40,000 points. 
So basically going up four times. Yeah, I remember this book. I think a lot of people bought it and they wanted to believe it. And of course, this didn't happen at all. The 2000s turned out to be the first negative returning decade ever recorded on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And so his follow-up was? Well, his follow-up was to write a book in 2008, I believe. Now, in 2008, remember, we're going through the global credit crisis. The market was down significantly. And so the headlines we were surrounded by were all negative headlines, telling us how awful things were going to be forever. And so Mr. Dent wrote a book called The Great Depression Ahead. And as I said, when that book was published, the Dow Jones was around 8,000 points. And over the next 10 years, so this is from credit crisis to post-credit crisis, it grew to 25,000 points. So again, completely wrong. Well, and I'm sure he made a ton of money off of it too. Selling the book. Yeah. Not taking the advice. Not taking the advice, but I think that's also important to remember is that when we see a lot of this information, people are using it to sell something. And in Mr. Dent's case, well, why not? Write a book, sell it. Get paid. Get paid. Yeah. In all fairness, it is easy to look back in the mirror and see what happened. And I'm sure, well, I remember that time we worked together during 2008, 2009. Yep, sure did. Those were tough times. I mean, and it really did feel like things were just going to be bad for a long time. There were some pretty dark days. However, I'm glad Mr. Dent was wrong. Same here. So Steve, I know you were looking at a couple of other magazine headlines around that time period. But before we get into that, I just want to get back to the theme again, is entertainment advice. So these are headlines that we're surrounded by that we think are giving us actionable advice, but really they should probably only be used for entertainment purposes. There were definitely a lot of headlines in 2008 that were very distracting. If you were an investor during that period of time, it was easy to be nervous and believe that the market was coming to an end. I did come across one article, however. It was Money Magazine, June of 2008, and it talked about only the seven investments you need. And I went through the list, and it talked about a blue-chip U.S. stock fund, a blue-chip foreign stock fund, a small company fund, a value fund, a high-quality bond fund, an inflation-protected bond fund, and a money market fund. Actually sounds pretty good. I realized that this resembles a lot of our own portfolios that are broadly diversified, that manage your risk and your expectations. And I thought, well, that's actually pretty good advice. I wonder how many people actually took that to consideration or went looking for the next big pick. I think I got the answer to that. Not very many because June of 2008, we were in the global credit crisis. It was about that time period that the I think the U.S. House of Representatives voted down the bailout package and the market fell, I don't know, a bunch in a bunch of days. But the other thing I was going to say about that, and I didn't mean to cut you off, was that that is really good advice that Money Magazine gave, but it wasn't flashy. Correct. So it wouldn't necessarily generate a bunch of readers to go do it. No. I think there's this belief that investing should be trying to pick the next outperforming stock. And the reality is from being in this business for over 20 years, it's virtually impossible. And I think the academics have proven that and it's just a no-win situation. Exactly. So tell us a little bit about 2008. I know we all lived it, but what was the mood like back then? Well, 2008, I remember 
a lot of conversations with clients and a lot of people were nervous. I think for the first time, this was a major correction that people just had not experienced in their investment lifetime. They felt it was the end of capitalism. It was the fall of the U.S. so-called empire. There's a lot of concern regarding the U.S. losing its reserve currency status. Can you imagine that? Massive inflation with falling interest rates, the devaluation of currency based off of the government printing money, or i.e. quantitative easing. And we'll get into what quantitative easing is in a future episode, but yeah, lots going on then. We ended up seeing precious metals like gold and silver shooting up to these record prices with the belief that people were actually going to use this as their currency in the event that the financial institutions completely collapsed and you weren't able to get your money out of the bank machine. I remember getting those calls from clients like, what would happen if the bank you owned at stopped being in existence? A strange call to get. And what are you doing with my money? If we talk about kind of if you had sold out, like what would have happened if you took that advice, took those headlines, so along our conversation of entertainment advice, what would have happened if you would have sold out? Well, I think we know historically looking at data, we would have missed the largest bull run in stock market history. Now, before you get into that data, of course, there are a lot of headlines in 2008, 2009, but I know there's three specifically that we've identified just for this episode. Maybe take us through those. So back in March of 2009, Time Magazine, its cover page said, holding on for dear life. McLean's Magazine said, how bad will it get? January 2009, Money Magazine, is it all over for stocks? Scary times. And when we look at the data using the S&P 500, which is the 500 largest companies in the U.S. at the point at that time, from January 1st, 2009, it closed at 931 points. If we were to take a look at what your return would have been between that last day to yesterday's close, the S&P closed at 3,197 points for a total return of 243%. Well, that doesn't sound like you're holding on for dear life. That sounds like you're kind of hitting it out of the park. There is a question that I have because in February, the market was at an all-time high Correct. of this year. This cycle feels a lot like 2009. Maybe just the time frame is shorter, but a lot of the same activities are happening as far as like investor sentiment and investor behavior. So I have a question for you, and that is the last person in to the previous bull market. In other words, the last person to put a dollar in in 2007 before the global credit crisis. How would they have been impacted throughout the global credit crisis and to today? Well, that's a good question, Colin. And I just happen to have the information. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> the U.S. bear market lasted 17 months from October 9th, 2007 to March 9th, 2009. So from peak to bottom, it was a negative 57% return in the market. Pretty scary. You don't find that number in any financial plans? No, definitely not. But coming back to your question, so if we take a look at that last dollar put in on October 9th, 2007 to yesterday's close, which would have been almost 13 years. Yesterday's close as of the time of recording today. Correct. Which was 3,197 points in the S&P. Your total return is still 104%. If we break that down over those 12 
years and so many months, it's still over 8% a year. And that is having gone through the worst market since the dirty 30s at that time. Correct. The Great Recession. You betcha. So you just stayed invested. If you would have just stayed invested, not bad. I'll take my 8%. Let's talk about how that is being played out today. Because we're getting similar headlines as we had back in 2009, 2008, etc. March 23rd of this year, CNBC put out an article talking about how March was the fastest 30% sell-off ever, exceeding the pace of declines during the Great Depression. And in it, they had quotes like, and I'm just going to read this, investors continued to dump equities as they feared that the economic fallout from the coronavirus outpaced the actions from global central banks and governments. Another one stating, do not believe that any equity market stabilization is a sign of an investable bottom in U.S. stocks. So, Steve... That was March 23rd of this year. Do you know what happened on March 24th? Colin, I'm interested to hear what happened March 24th. Well, you know I got that information right in front of me. I'm sure you do. March 24th, 2020 was the largest single day return in U.S. stock market history. I guess the article from March 23rd became meaningless. Absolutely. And I feel for the people who took March 23rd's headlines and acted on it. This would be similar to the people that back in, as you pointed out, not October 9th, 2007, but maybe they sold out on October 10th of 2007 and never got back in and or got back in too late. Yeah. Greg and I, a couple episodes ago, talked about the importance of market timing or how you're not really able to do it that well because nobody is. And now if you miss just a few of the largest return days in a time period, your outcome has changed dramatically. And so I, I remember the numbers because I just listened to this the other day. It was something like, it was a 50-year period. If you put $1,000 in and you just stayed invested in the U.S. market, it grew to something like $121,000. But if you missed the 25 best performing days over 50 years, it only grew to like something like $20,000. It's a dramatic difference in outcome. Unfortunately, in our world of investing, it's always easier said than done which I think is important for investors to understand always. If there's anything that we've learned from these sorts of events, it's remain invested. That was so well said. It deserves a standing ovation. So Steve, what have we learned today? Be wary of headlines. Take an entertainment advice approach to them. So what do you mean by that? Again, just for our listeners, recap that entertainment advice approach is just to Maybe not do anything with it. Just enjoy the headline. All right, what else? What else did we learn? Stock markets recover. They always have, and they can recover quickly, as per March and April of this year. I've already said it, remain invested. There's a lot of things over time, and most likely investors' time horizon and investment horizons span decades. That's an interesting point because a lot of people will come in and they'll say, well, I'm retiring next year, and should we adjust my asset allocation because... I've got to live off my money now. And we'll get into this in another episode a little more deeply, but somebody that's retiring this year could have as many as four decades ahead of them. And I think that's important to understand and make sure that's put into your planning and constantly being reviewed with your advisor. Exactly. Hey, for fun, let's talk about some things. I've been reading a book that is awesome. It's called... The Call of the Wild by Jack London. It was on one of these 
must-read book lists. And I was a little skeptical because it's only 70 pages long. I thought, how good can this book be? But I got to tell you, it is worth a read. It's an old book, but what have you been doing for fun these days? What have you and your family been doing? We've been spending some time watching series on Netflix. The one that we recently completed was Ozark. Oh, yeah. That's not really PG, is it? No, it's not really PG, but interestingly enough, it does involve an investment advisor and just... (laughs) Wait a minute. Doesn't he like steal a bunch of money and like kill people and stuff? (laughs) Or am I giving it away or... I think for our listeners, I don't want to give it away, but it's definitely an entertaining series. And for those listeners, we run a tighter ship than that. Okay. (laughs) You know, and just spending a lot of time with my family. My wife enjoys riding her horses. And luckily with the weather we've been having in Calgary, had a chance to head out to the links. Now you are golfing after market hours. Definitely. Always after market hours, always after client requests. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I know we usually like to talk about some local events. A local event that we've been talking about in our household is, it's more of a debate. Will schools reopen in September? And I know here in Alberta, they're supposed to make that announcement in August. Yeah, I think so. I can tell you that my wife is hopeful that the schools open (laughs) because the kids need to get back to doing something more normal. I agree. I think in our household, we are also hopeful that the kids get back to some normalcy, some sort of routine. But unfortunately, there is a part of me that is concerned about their health and welfare. And I think this pandemic just changes the dynamic of everything. Exactly. Well, that's it for today. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. And Steve, you'll be back for future episodes. Yeah, thanks, Colin, for having me. Yeah, it's fun. So till next time on The Free Lunch. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.